Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's page 956 in these uh, Bibles that are in the pews. For several months we've been studying 1 Corinthians. In fact, I was thinking recently, if I don't pick up the pace, we may be here at Christmas time. So uh, I'm going to cover hopefully an entire chapter now with chapter 9. It's not real long. It really just deals with two themes. So I'll read it in just, just a moment. Uh, let me tell you what's here. If you're not real familiar with the Bible, uh, the way the New Testament is laid out, you had the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, each of the Gospels is written to a different audience. Uh, Matthew was written to the Jewish people, so he assumes a lot of Jewish knowledge. Uh, Mark was written to the Romans. They thought in terms of action, so you don't find any sermons of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark because he's just reporting things Jesus did for his audience. Luke was a Gentile, and he's writing to Gentiles, so when you come across Jewish customs that Matthew would have assumed, uh, Luke explains them. And John was written to all people. It stresses a universal message for God so loved the world, that this message is just not for Jews, it's not just for Romans, it's for everybody. So we have the four Gospels, and we have the book of Acts that was also written by Luke. Those are two volumes of one work, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts both by Luke. Luke wrote most of the New Testament. We lay out page for page. Then we come to the book of Romans, and starting with Romans, we go from Romans to Corinthians to Galatians, Ephesians, and so forth. We have the letters of the Apostle Paul, and they are arranged according to length. Romans is longer than Corinthians, Corinthians is longer than Galatians, and so that's how we have that order. By the time we get down to Hebrews, we don't know who wrote that because the author does not identify himself. So it's stand alone, and then we have the rest of the 27 total New Testament books. Paul is in the city of Ephesus. He had been in Corinth, to remind you. Corinth was a large metropolitan area. It was a port city, so you had many nationalities, many religious backgrounds, all sorts of things and vices that tend to come into port cities, people all over the world with no accountability that would be there. Paul had gone there, and he had, he had evangelized, he had led people to Christ, and he had established a church. He had trained the leaders, and after 18 months, it was a functioning local church. He moves on, and now he's in the city of Ephesus. They have written to him because there are problems in the church. The first eight chapters dealt with some of those problems that we'll not review right now. But one of the issues was that people within the church at Corinth were questioning Paul's authority, which was kind of ironic since he he is the one who had led them to Christ. And they were saying, "Why, why do we think he's an apostle? Where does he get that authority? So let me explain what the word apostle means. It's a Greek word that means one, it's from a Greek word that means one who is sent. We believe the office of apostle was only occupied by 13 men. The original 12 disciples that Jesus chose from a larger multitude of disciples, those 12, Judas killed himself, he was replaced by a man named Matthias, and then later on the road to Damascus, Saul is converted and becomes Paul. So there were 13 apostles. Today you can drive around town and see a billboard to go to such and such a church pastored by apostle so-and-so and and her husband or something like that. We think only the original 13 were apostles. Now, we refer to the time as far as occupying the office of apostle. 
We could use the term apostolic today, meaning it gets the message out, but it's better just to not even use it. But we do refer to that time when the apostles were living as the apostolic time. After they died, which would be in the early part of the second century, by the time I think John was the last to die, well, I'm not sure what year Paul died, then we refer to that time in history as the post-apostolic time. In the first two-thirds of this chapter, Paul is defending his being an apostle. Also, that he had labored among them and never received money for doing so. So that's, we're going to start reading, and if I don't tell you that, this isn't going to make a lot of sense. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 1 through the chapter. Am I not free, and, I'm on, and am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, 
but we and imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a day where we lack passion often to see others come to Christ. We pray you might use this now uh, to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. I was talking with a college student recently, and we had lunch together, and uh, as I was talking to him, and I've, I've known him for several years, I, I said, you know, when I hear you talk, I'm not sure if you're a Christian or not. And he said, I'm not either. And I said, well, why don't we talk about it? And so we spent about 45 minutes of lunch going through the, the plan of salvation and what it means to believe and know Christ. And at the end, he said, you know, I know if I, if I put my trust in Christ, uh, then it's going to bring significant changes in my life. And he said, I don't want to make that decision and be hypocritical about it. He said, I'm around people, some that have been baptized, and they say they're Christians, but they don't live like it. And he said, I don't want to be like that. And I said, well, that's good. I said, Jesus said you should count the cost before you set about, you know, before you believe. And I said, on the other hand, if you wait until every question you have is answered, you'll never believe. Because I said, I have just as many questions as I did before I became a Christian. And so it was a very significant conversation. Same time, I, I talked to a couple of people that have seen God use them in other people's lives, and there's exhilaration there where they've had opportunities to talk about Christ. What Paul is talking about here is that exhilaration of, of ministry to other people and how God had called him to do that. So as I mentioned, he starts off, and we'll just look at it together, of how an effective witness gives up certain rights. The first part of the chapter, primarily verses 1 and 2, he, he goes into his credentials for being an apostle. As, it, as I mentioned and as we read, his authority was under attack from some of the very people we can assume he had led to Christ. And he writes to them to emphasize that he is an apostle and that authority has been given to him from Christ. It wasn't something he pursued. It wasn't something he sought. Now, the requirement some of the requirements for being one of those original apostles, I mentioned there were 13, the office of apostle, is that one criteria is that the person must have been directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus as an apostle. And Paul was, and that happened on the road to Damascus when he was converted. Secondly, the person who was an apostle must have seen the risen Lord Christ, not just heard about it, but seen him. Now, in Paul's case, and his name was Saul at that time, he sees him on that road. When he's going to persecute Christians, he meets the risen Lord Jesus on that road to Damascus. And the third criteria that I'll mention for being an apostle is there must be genuine fruit from your ministry. It must be obvious that God uses you to see people come to Christ, to see churches planted. And so the fact that they are part of the evidence of him being an apostle is ironic that they're asking the questions. He's saying, you are testimony to it. The fact that you as a church exist is testimony to the fact Paul is saying that I'm an apostle. And so in verses 3 to 6, he talks about legitimate rights he and the other apostles had. Do we not have a right 
to food and drink, he says in verse 4. In other words, to be supported, our meals to be supported by the church. Do we not have a right, he says in verse 5, to bring along a believing wife, to be married. And if we were traveling as he was, to have himself and his wife supported by the church. Verse 6 says they have a right to be released from manual labor in order to preach the gospel. Now, Paul, his labor, his area of training was that of being a tent maker, literally. Today we use that term to talk about a second job or someone working a job until it grows into a, a vocational ministry. But he literally was a tent maker. Whether he was sewing canvas or making awnings, we don't know the details, but that's how he supported himself. And he did that in Corinth rather than receiving compensation from these people that at the church at Corinth. He would work apparently during the day and he'd preach at night. We see example of that in Acts chapter 20. When I was in college, a ministry came that I was involved in for a while, and you don't hear about it too often today, but some of you have it in your background. It's called the Navigators. And it was called the Navigators because it began in San Diego, primarily with sailors, uh, right before World War II, uh, hence the name Navigator. And the staff and his wife, staff person named Terry Cook, he and his wife moved to the University of Alabama, and he was going to begin a ministry. But initially when they moved there, he, he worked to support himself, and he worked as a garbage man. He bought a garbage truck for $150, and it was worth every penny of that $150, I promise you. I mean, they didn't have one of those big presses or anything that moves, you know, hydraulic things. It was just this big old truck. And he would collect the garbage at this huge apartment complex where they lived. They'd take the garbage out of the dumpsters, and then he'd make a trip once or twice a week to the dump to get rid of it. And so I remember telling, asking Terry, he'd say, I'd like to spend some time with you and, and learn from you. He said, okay, why don't you meet me at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning and do the garbage with me? So I was discipled to an extent in college doing garbage with Terry Cook. Now, here was their philosophy, and I'm, he was the first person I heard say this. He said, we believe that we grow into ministry, we don't go into ministry. In other words, when the ministry to the students and in the community begins to take my full time, then I'll diminish and finally do away with the secular work that I'm doing to support myself. And that's what he did. I think by the second or third year, the ministry was of such a size and substance that he no longer had to do that. Paul was saying that he chose to give up his right for support um, for particular reasons that we'll see in a moment. He says, though that ministers, those who preach the gospel, like himself, have a right to support. Okay, Chip, you're sounding self-serving. I'm not. I'm going to explain the, the passage here. He uses a natural analogy in verse 7. Isn't a soldier paid for his service? Doesn't a farmer eat of the grapes of their vineyards? A shepherd drinks of the milk of the flock? Then he refers to Scripture in the Old Testament law, verse 9, does not, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. It was allowed to eat. God was providing for the animal because God cared for it even while, while it worked. Verse 10, the plowman plows and the thresher threshes in hope of sharing in the harvest. And so then in verse 14, there's just an, a direct command. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. 
So I just want to point out there is a place for vocational Christian workers who make their living from their service. Those who are ministered to should support them. Now, in America, I don't know all the statistics, but I do know that there are over 300,000 Protestant churches, local churches in America. Most of pastors are bivocational. The, the typical size church in America is 28 people. Okay, so that, that's, that's why you can see that why so many pastors are bivocational. They pastor and they work some other job on the side. But the principle in the scripture is that if you're ministered to, then there should be a financial compensation for that. How much should it be? I don't have the answers to that. Different churches have different approaches. Some churches say, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. You know, they just believe in impoverish the person. Others say, well, we don't want to pay him too much because then he'll never leave. You know, or uh, should the criteria, you can laugh. I mean, it is funny. I mean, I, I, I think that. Should the criteria be age? Or will well, we pay somebody that's older more or more experienced? Or will this person has a PhD or, or whatever? Or, or their family size? Um, here's my personal opinion. If, if I was on a committee and they were saying, hey, there's a, a new church over there, they're wondering how much to pay their pastor, I'd say pay them enough to function effectively in the cultural setting to which they're called. And that varies from every community and every town and, and whether it's super expensive to live somewhere or, or not very expensive. Pay them enough to function effectively in the cultural setting to which one is called. Well, Paul in verse 19 renounced that right. Why did he do this? He said he wanted to remove any hindrance from the gospel. He didn't want to be accused of being in it for the money or being a charlatan. Uh, Rick Warren, who started, he and his wife Kay started Saddleback Church in Orange County back years ago, and you've probably heard of him. He's written different books like The Purpose Driven Life or The Purpose Driven Church or, or things like that. Well, I remember hearing him say uh, on a recording that when the purpose-driven life was published, he said he and Kay overnight became very wealthy. That's the way he put it. But they decided we are not using any of that money. We are not changing one. We are not making one different spending decision. He said we didn't buy a new house. We didn't buy a new car. We set up like foundations to support ministries around the world. And he said, I also paid back to Saddleback Church the salaries they had paid me from the very beginning. I paid back like 20 years of salary back to the church. Now, did, I told that to a friend of mine, and I watched his response because he didn't think much of Rick Warren. He just thought, well, they producing these books to make money. And I said, no, I've read firsthand. That's not what he's done. And he said, I'm glad you told me that. Why was he glad I told him that? Because Rick, I don't know Rick Warren personally, but I would assume because his motives became clearer at that point. Paul was saying that he, Barnabas, we didn't want to cause any hindrance to the gospel. So we chose to give up that liberty. Reminds us of chapter 8, you know, giving up liberties in order not to be a hindrance to you. We didn't accept compensation, did not accept any pay. Therefore, he felt it would be better for him to support himself and not receive anything from these people. 
And then in verses 16 to 18, he says, I preach because I'm compelled to preach. I have to preach. God has called me to do this. Woe to me, in one translation it says, if I do not preach. He doesn't take any credit for preaching the gospel because he says he has to do so. It would be like if you hired someone to do something for you, maybe to wash and wax your car. And you said, I'll pay you $40 to wash and wax my car. And an hour and a half later, the, the person comes back and says, well, I finished. Look what I did. I washed and waxed your car. You'd say, well, it looks great. Here's the money. Aren't you glad I washed and waxed your car? He said, well, no, we made an agreement. That's what you were supposed to do. Paul's saying, I'm supposed to preach the gospel. I'm compelled to preach the gospel. I will do it regardless of where I am. You and I are not apostles, as I said earlier, and not necessarily, in my case, I'm called to gospel ministry, but for most people, it will be lived out in, in the marketplace or in school and places like that. And all of us are to be fishers of men. All of us are to bear witness. All of us are to be able to give an answer for the hope that is within us, as it says in Peter. So to be a follower of Christ is to be a witness for him. And this is part of being a Christian. So as Paul said, we're compelled. We're, we're compelled uh, each day to, to, and I'd urge you to, some of us were talking about this the other day, to begin your day and pray, Lord, please open doors today for me to serve you or to speak to other people about you. And then to go through the day with alertness, being alert to opportunities. Okay, last part, and I won't spend as much time, is that an effective witness has a strategy. He has the proper motivation, but he has a strategy. So in verses 19 to 23, Paul gives a strategy. And that is, he says in verse 19, I've made myself a slave to as many as possible. He served other people. It was the opposite of what we would naturally expect. In verse 20 and 22, he says to the Jews, those who still cling to their ceremonial law, about the rituals and rites, you know, eating kosher food or not, clean or unclean. Paul said when he was with them, he obeyed their ceremonial laws. Why? That I might win some. Then he says, like with the Gentiles, to those who did not, who were not under the law, they, he didn't mean the moral law, like the Ten Commandments, but the ceremonial law. When he was with them, he didn't worry about things like that. He probably would have put anything put, set before him as far as food. To the weak, he addressed that last week when we looked at chapter 8, he said, I restrict my liberty. Why? That I might win them. I have become, verse 22, the latter part says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He doesn't mean he has the power to save, but he might be God's instrument. Now we could look at that and say, well, what a hypocrite. He acts one way with that group, he acts another way with this group. He's with the Jews and their ceremonial law, and he acts like that's good. And then he's over here with those who don't obey it, and he acts like them. What was he doing? Well, Christians through history have always dealt with this rub between truth and culture, cultural settings. And so we find that in at least four ways, Christians have tried to relate to culture. One way is to reject it. Let's just withdraw and isolate ourselves. The culture's all bad. It leads us into sin. We don't want to be contaminated by that worldliness. And so let's avoid all the possible contact we can with unconverted people. 
And as a result, there's no natural bridge for evangelism. One writer said they have a message but no audience because there's no contact. We call that rejection. Another approach is immersion. It's just the opposite of rejection. In this approach, Christians become essentially the same as the world. We adopt the world's standards. We look like the world. We talk like the world. We have the same values as as the world. This has been described as this group has an audience but no message. The first group had a message but no audience. This one has an audience but no message because the world has pushed them into its mold. And then the third, I'll I'll skip over the third, the fourth one is critical participation. And this is where a believer sees him or herself as dual citizens. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a citizen of this world as well. And God has left us here to be involved in the redemptive mission. And that redemptive mission has cultural implications. As far as among different people groups in the United States or in Asia or in New Zealand or in Russia or wherever it might be, there are various cultural distinctions. Paul had the ability as a mature evangelist to be very culturally agile. When he was in Rome, he did as the Romans. He used Roman law since he was a Roman citizen to his advantage in a good way. With the Jews, though, he he observed their law. Now, here's what didn't change, the message. The message stayed constant, the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. But the cultural adaptation changed with each group. So his strategy, he says, is to become, to become like them. And that, what I think he means, is the ability to understand and to relate to the social and cultural differences. That was Paul's strategy. Now, let me give you an example. 185 years ago today, in Barnsley, England, was born a man who was named Hudson, well, he was born a baby, but he was named Hudson Taylor. And he founded... Years later, he founded the China Inland Mission, which is now called Overseas Missionary Fellowship. And after he had served in China for a while, and like most British or foreign missionaries, he continued to look like a man from England. He dressed like a man from England. He would follow his English habits. But then he changed all that. He started to wear the clothes like Chinese wear. He let his hair grow real long and braided it in the style that Chinese men did at that time. And he began to eat Chinese food. And in response to this, some of his fellow missionaries criticized him. They thought he was not doing what was right. But Hudson Taylor had thought through what was essential to the gospel and therefore non-negotiable and what was just cultural that could be a barrier which really wasn't important. So he saw himself taking down unnecessary, unnecessary barriers to the gospel. Now that's not to say, don't, please don't hear me saying that all elements in every culture are morally neutral. I'm not. There's some things in our culture and other cultures that are, that are sinful and bad, just in and of themselves. For example, when John Patton served as a missionary in uh, east of Australia in the Pacific in the New Hebrides Islands, 
If you find all through those islands, there was a practice called widow burning, which meant if a husband died, the widow would be put to death by burning her or strangling her within a day or two. And the thinking of the people was she is to follow her husband into the afterlife so that she can serve him there. Well, John Patton and these other Christian missionaries said, this is wrong. This should stop. They didn't say, well, this is, I'm going to, when in the New Hebrides, I'll act like a New Hebrides. This is part of their culture. When Amy Carmichael, who grew up in Ireland, when she served as a, gave her adult life as a missionary to India, there was a practice of selling children to the temple as child prostitutes. And much of her ministry and those with her was rescuing these children out of that and working to get that stopped. Foot binding. In some of the Asian countries, like in China, some emperor in the past, I'm not sure who, decided that a female would look more beautiful with small feet. And so they take these, these young girls and they would bind, bind their feet. I've seen pictures wrapped around and as the child grew, it broke the bones in their feet, and they, their feet stayed small, but they, they remained bound for the rest of their life. So you had generations of these women that essentially were disabled because of this cultural uh, thing called foot binding. And missionaries helped work to stop that, saying this is not right. So I'm not, Paul was not saying everything in every culture is good. Please don't hear that. But he's saying that to whatever degree I can culturally adapt to this group that I might win some with the non-changing message of the gospel, then I'll do it. And then he ends with a, with a remark about himself comparing himself to an athlete. Basically that, hey, you don't become effective as an athlete without training. You can't be effective as an evangelist without training. Some of us, I, I hope that you do whatever your learning style is, if it's more auditory or if it's through reading. I, I like to read, and I, I, I try to, a lot of my reading is preparation for conversations that have never taken place yet. But I feel I want to be ready when they do. And so if a person asks you, why in the world do you think the Bible could possibly be true? I mean, all religions, don't they all have sacred literature, writings, why do you think the Bible's any different? It's one thing to say, I don't know once, but we shouldn't say, I don't know twice. So like an athlete, Paul was saying, I train, I train for what I do. Aren't we glad that he did? A few years ago, well, back in one of the Olympics, I was looking at some of the training schedules of some of the athletes, and uh, one of the well-known gymnasts who, who won a gold medal said she trained 42 hours a week a year, 42 hours a week leading up to that. One of the women softball players who was also studying to be an orthopedic surgeon in addition gave 30 hours a week to training. Holly McPeak, who was one of the first beach volleyball competitors, she, she worked at it 16 hours a week and get this, every day she did 1,500 stomach crunches. Try that at home. Uh, but on and on, you see this training. So Paul's saying they don't, they don't win by uh, being lazy or not, not devoted. They train. And if we're to be effective in evangelism, when God opens that door, 
let's seek to be ready. Let's seek, as Peter says, to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Uh, so that, that ought to motivate our reading, our listening, our taking of classes. Our, I recommend again, uh, Robbie Zacharias uh, Academy, these online courses you can take. Right now, just starting this week, is a new one on Islam. And in two weeks, there'll be another one. But, but I've learned loads from, from exposure to that, taking uh, classes with Robbie Zacharias and others. Um, last word, I conclude with this, and, and that is a word to, to those who may be here today that perhaps maybe you don't know Christ. And maybe you would say, well, I'm, I'm like that student you talked to, that, that you kind of you see where you are, but you're very open. And, and you might even say that you're searching uh, for one reason or another. And God has put somebody in your life. Uh, typically, people aren't attracted to Christ until they're attracted to Christ's people. And you see something there. Uh, I want you to know that person in your life, this believer that God has put there, is not there by accident. <laughs> they're not there by accident at all. God has sent that one or that group as his representatives. And uh, perhaps for the purpose of introducing you to him. Let's pray together. Uh, our Father, we pray that you might give us even a small part of the zeal of the Apostle Paul with the gospel and for other people. As he said, his desire was that he might share in the benefits of the gospel with those that come to know it. And we pray that even this week, you might give us that know you opportunity uh, to bear testimony in a way that would, would help another person, that we'd have our eyes open, that we'd look for those opportunities and pray for them, and that you would help us to, uh, to train and be disciplined and self-controlled uh, to be better in those areas. We pray for those that may not know Christ today that you would uh, open their eyes to the truth of who Christ is and what he did and the simplicity of believing in him and the way that you lovingly bring change to our lives when that happens. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.